Yeah, hey, if I haven't met you yet, I'm Josh. I'm one of the pastors. This is my guest, my wife. Guest. <laughs> wow. Um, Very formal. So as, as Ben said, uh, we are beginning a new series on the Beatitudes of Jesus uh, this week. And as our teaching team was thinking through uh, how best to uh, teach about the Beatitudes, we thought doing a scripture reading every week would help get the word more into our hearts, hopefully, or more, you know, if you don't have a church background, more exposed to Scripture. So, uh, Sarah's going to do our, uh, be the first of our, our readers. Right. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, from the fifth chapter in the Gospel of Matthew, we are, are reading today. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. And if you're Catholic, you say thanks be to God. That's good. I like it. I like it. Cool. Take both of those. All right. Thank you, Sarah. Appreciate it. So as we listen to the Beatitudes... It is clear how jarring they are to us who are used to life working a different way, a different pace, a different value system. They're jarring. Mourning and being insulted means that you're blessed. Is that right? The meek shall inherit the earth. On what planet does that actually happen? This isn't just about how things are done. Jesus is actually setting up a collision of values. He's doing this on purpose. Jesus didn't teach by accident. He's very intentional with every word that he uses to describe his message and his way of life. It's a collision that happened not only in Jesus' day, but it's still happening. Still happening in entertainment and in media that we watch It happens in everyday conversations. It's a collision that we feel in our very own hearts. And so we've used this image from Banksy to set up a collision as well. So as we look at this, if you don't know who Banksy is, Banksy is a, he's a street artist who has a guerrilla style of painting. So he shows up anonymous and he paints something on a wall and no one really realizes that he was there. Uh, a lot of people don't even know like what he looks like or who he is or anything about it, but he has the, the, these brilliant depictions of uh, collision of values. And so this one is called the flower thrower or love is in the air. He painted it in Bethlehem to actually protest war and, and to get across like what he stood for. You might also recognize uh, this next one you might have seen it around. Um, this is called Balloon Girl. Um, it's a balloon-shaped heart, heart-shaped balloon. Um, and then finally, you might even have seen this around. This is called Consumer Jesus. Uh, 
Very striking, very jarring. Jesus uh, crucified holding shopping bags. Now, I don't know where Banksy is at spiritually, but what comes across to me is that he recognizes the value system of Jesus and how the value system of the world collides with Jesus and how sometimes Jesus' message has been co-opted by the world to push its agenda, and it's even been co-opted by the church to push an, an, uh, an, an unkingdom agenda. The way of Jesus' kingdom is at odds with so much of what we've embraced as normal, everyday living, living, which can lead to explaining away the teachings of Scripture or an outright rejection of Jesus altogether. So John Stott, in his book, The Cross of Christ, uh, writes this, perhaps the most scornful rejection of the cross has come from the pen of German philosopher and philologist, I don't, know, I don't even know what that is, um, Frederick Nietzsche, near the beginning of the Antichrist, he defined the good as the will to power, the bad as all that proceeds from weakness, and happiness as the feeling that power increases. While what is more harmful than any vice is an active sympathy for an ill-constituted and weak, which is Christianity. Admiring Darwin's emphasis on the survival of the fittest, he despised all forms of weakness and in their place dreamt of the emergence of a superman and a daring ruler race. To him, depravity meant decadence. Decadence is just like a moral decline. And nothing was more decadent than Christianity, which has taken the side of everything weak, base, ill-constituted. Being the religion of pity, it preserves what is ripe for destruction and so thwarts the law of evolution." Nietzsche reserved his bitterest and invective for the Christian conception of God as the God of the sick, God as spider, God as spirit, and for the Christian Messiah who he dismissed contemptuously as a God on the cross. So for Nietzsche, weakness, uh, to show compassion for weak, was folly, which led him to rejecting Christianity altogether. And to us, we understand that as a very cut and dry rejection. He just outright rejected Jesus. What... Uh, what is subtle sometimes uh, in, in the sense of rejection is a reframing and a co-opting the requirements of Jesus. So check this out. Just in, in 2018, speaking to the online news site Politico, Tony Perkins was asked to explain the overwhelming support of evangelicals for Donald Trump in the 2016 election. And he said this, evangelical Christians, says Perkins, were tired of being kicked around by the leftists. And I think they are finally glad that there's someone on the playground that is willing to punch the bully. And the, the author asks, what happened to turn the other cheek, I ask. You know, the only, you only have two cheeks, Perkins says. Look, Christianity is not about being a welcome mat for people who can just stomp their feet on. Do you hear that? Do you, do you hear the, the co-opting of the Jesus message, but it's a reframing that actually is embracing the world's value system? What about turn the other cheek? That's right from the Bible. Yeah, but you only have two cheeks, meaning there's only so far you, you, uh, uh, so much you can take before it's time to, to be a bully and lash out and use power and fight fire with fire, right? Is that the message of Jesus? Now, this might not be jarring to you until we realize that Tony Perkins is the president of the Family Research Council, an in, uh, evangelical Christian think tank and a political activist group. Like, he, he speaks for Christians, specifically for American evangelicals, and this is the message is that, yeah, but you only have two cheeks. Isn't that fascinating? But can't you recognize this in your own life? 
like a, like a, subtle, a subtle rejection, but it's kind of like a, you, you can kind of give yourself an out from following the ways of Jesus. Yeah, but I know it says that, but yeah, but it means this really. How many times have we heard that? How many times have we said that, right? There is a line of thinking in the culture wars that goes like this. Sure, being a Christian means believing in and following Jesus, and that involves forgiveness, love, and being generous to strangers. But to get things done in this world means playing by its rules, which means fighting back and being ruthless when it's for the greater good of getting our way. That's how people think, is that Jesus has his set of rules that we're supposed to live by, but the world has its set of rules, and the Jesus rules don't really apply to the world if you actually want to get some stuff done. But can you live a Jesus-shaped life by operating from such divided loyalties? Can you follow Jesus and also operate from the world's value system? Will Jesus really allow us to maintain a residence in his kingdom while we act however we want because the ends, of course, justify the means? And I'm not simply talking about political theater. Don't, don't mistake me here. What about being good Christians on Sundays but living however you want the rest of the week? What's at stake when our own online persona looks perfectly manicured, but our lives are full of anger, hatred, and greed? What happens when our curb appeal is immaculate, but on the inside of our homes, our kids only know relational disconnection, raised voices, and a lack of love and nurture? But the good news is that Jesus came for messy people. Jesus came for people who are in the midst of the brokenness of the world and trying to figure out how to follow him and be open to his correction and realignment when our values look more like the world than they do Jesus's. So I think it's helpful to understand that Jesus came for the the messy, the distressed, the discomforted. He came to give hope to people exactly like you and like me. And so I think it's important as as we look at the scripture today, I want to begin with some context on Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. It's interesting to to me, at least, to note, and hopefully to you, who is attracted to Jesus' message. And we find this at the end of chapter 4 in in the book of Matthew. Matthew 4.23 says this, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, which is a region of ten cities, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. So it wasn't the wealthy or the powerful who were named as the ones drawn in crowds, to Jesus. It was the sick, the afflicted, those in pain, those cast aside, those marginalized, those forgotten. And they came streaming to him for help. Matthew continues now in chapter 5. This that flows right into chapter 5. And I want you to remember who makes up the crowd. So Matthew 5.1 says this, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Jesus sits as a rabbi, a wise master teacher who has the rapt attention of the crowd. He's healed and helped them with extravagant compassion, and now he's going to unpack the motivation behind why he's doing what he's doing. And Matthew does something really interesting here. He actually does a callback 
to Moses and the giving of the law. So when uh, the uh, Israelites had escaped their Egyptian bondage through God's grace and provision and, and all the miracles, uh, Moses went up to, on a mountain to receive the law from God to give to the new nation of Israel about the boundaries of their new nation, how they're to act. And it was a covenant between God and Israel that God would always be for them, God would always bless them, and they would respond in loving kindness back to God and in that covenant by following these different laws and, and uh, uh, regulations. But we have now a greater Moses, Jesus, who goes up to the mountain and again, gives not a law, but he gives a, a love out and a new way of his kingdom. This is to be seen in the Sermon on the Mount as a new constitution for a new nation that transcends ethnic or uh, uh, spatial boundaries, but its, its, its doors are wide open. And the invitation is given to anyone, anywhere, young, old, rich, poor, brown, black, white, Anyone and everyone can respond and enter into Jesus' kingdom through him, through the love giver, through the sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ. So more than a list of laws to abide by, it's a love, love that flows from yielded hearts. Jesus is teaching not just as a checklist, but as, as a citizen of the kingdom, this is how your heart is to flow in love for God, self, and neighbor. And the Beatitudes are the first couple, like, like dozen uh, verses of the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus' most famous teaching, the most famous sermon that's ever been taught, I, like there's nothing I could say or do that will ever come close to being as good and as wise and as true as the Sermon on the Mount, even if I just read it to you verbatim again. It's still going to be better coming from the mouth of Jesus, right? And everybody said, amen. We love you, pastor, but yeah, you're not Jesus. So, right. So, this is the most famous sermon, and the Beatitudes are, are sort of the preamble. Like, every nation has this constitution, right? Ours has a, this preamble. We believe these truths to be self-evident. I think that's the preamble, right? Someone, yes, nailed it. Yes. Okay, I didn't even have to Google that. I just, like, civics class coming back to me in a flash. So Jesus gives this new law of love in the Sermon on the Mount, and really, the, the, the way of the kingdom is summarized, can be summarized in the Beatitudes, and then the rest of the sermon, the rest of the Gospels, the rest of the New Testament is just an unpacking of how do we do the Beatitudes in our everyday life? How do we flow in love for God and, and respond to Him by living appropriately in His kingdom as citizens, filled with love back to Him and to others? Because the kingdom of God should occupy the place of primary allegiance in our hearts and should be demonstrated by how we follow these teachings of Jesus. Stanley Howarouse in his commentary on Matthew says this, When he called his society together, Jesus gave its members a new way of life to live. He gave them a new way to deal with offenders by forgiving them. He gave them a new way to deal with violence by suffering. He gave them a new way to deal with money by sharing it. He gave them a new, new way to deal with problems of leadership by drawing on the gift of every member, even the most humble. He gave them a new way to deal with a corrupt society by building a new order, not smashing the old. He gave them a new pattern of relationship between man and woman, between parent and child, between master and slave, in which was made concrete a radical new vision of what it means to be a human person. He gave them a new attitude towards the state and toward, quote, the enemy nation. So what comes next, the very next few verses after he sits down and teaches, is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Those teachers and professors among us 
are, are familiar with the most asked question of students. Will this be on the test? And as we listen to this, we have these same questions. Is there going to be a test over this stuff? What do we need to know? Like, what do we act like? I, need, I know we need to know this, but what do you actually need to know? No, you know? What's going to show up on a quiz or a test, or what am I going to be held accountable for? And that's the question that we are asking ourselves as we read the Beatitudes and as, you know, we even read the Sermon on the Mount. Which of this do I have to know, and which of this do I have to actually do? So I want to actually, we, we've read the few, the first couple lines of the Sermon on the Mount. I want to actually read this, the last bookend part of the Sermon on the Mount, because Jesus answers that question, what do we actually need to know about what he's teaching? Matthew 7, he closes it down like this. Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the ones who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain came down, the stream rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice Everyone who hears these words and doesn't let their life be shaped by these truths, everyone who hears these words and memorizes it as facts, but doesn't practice it as a lifestyle, is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. The teachings of Jesus are not just to be studied and learned. They are to be lived, and they are to be practiced. John Stott, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, says, So Jesus confronts us with himself, sets before us the radical choice between obedience and disobedience, and calls us to an unconditional commitment of mind, will, and life to his teaching. To be Christians, to be Christ followers, is to embrace who Jesus is and to emulate him as our example. No one will do this perfectly. That's why we needed Jesus to come and make perfect things out of brokenness. But there is an effort that has to be put forth to follow Jesus as he works in our lives. And there must be mid-course corrections, as, and he shows us where we fall short and how we're resisting the movement of the Spirit in our lives to make us more like Jesus. These corrections are just called a lifestyle of repentance. When God brings you up short, you repent. You ask for forgiveness, and you, you make amends to do differently next time. Our life is one of that because no one still is perfect. No one has this perfectly down. No one will live perfectly in the Sermon on the Mount. But when Jesus brings us up short, we are quick to ask forgiveness and to repent. Mark Skandrit in The Ninefold Path of Jesus says this, The Beatitudes name the illusions and false beliefs that have kept us chained and imprisoned. We've learned to live from a mentality of anxiety and greed, but what if this is a world of abundance? We've learned to live as if there is no option but despair, but what if solace and comfort are near? 
We've learned to live by striving, competing, and comparing, but what if we all have equal dignity and worth? The Beatitudes point us towards what is real and true. We are not helpless. We have the power to do good and seek justice. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We can stop hiding and pretending and be honest. The Beatitudes invite us to a new way of life into a path of recovery. Instead of dividing the world into us and them, we can learn to embrace each other as family. Instead of resisting pain, we can learn to be resilient and join the cosmic struggle between good and evil. And instead of living in fear, we can choose hope, courage, and radical love. And so with that, let's look at the beginning of the Beatitudes. The first Beatitude today is Matthew verse, uh, 5, verse 3. Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And you, you might even do well this week to just, as a next step, like memorize, memorize a, a beatitude. A beatitude a week is not too hard. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The goal isn't to just memorize this, but to have our heart flowing with these truths and this reality. To be able to be reminded ourselves of of how the kingdom of God is structured, what the value system is. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. That is a massive collision between the values that we're used to and who Jesus is is. And my prayer for all of us is that Jesus wins, <laughs> that his value system becomes deeply rooted in our hearts. And we're reminded, we're able to remind each other that this is the way of Jesus, right? So as I said earlier, the statement is a contrast against what's expected, setting up this collision with common experience and the upside down nature of God's kingdom. So let's look at a few of these terms to get a better understanding. I just want to break this, this, this phrase, this line, down for us. First, what does it mean to be blessed? Certainly, it's got to go beyond a hashtag that you post while you're sipping a pumpkin spice latte and it's sweater weather. Like, it's got to be, it's not sweater weather today, like, but it's September, so I'm conflicted. There's already collision. I don't know what to do. Am I hashtag blessed when it's still jorts weather for Ben? Is anybody blessed when it's George Weatherford? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so it's got to go, go beyond a hashtag or something that you say when you have an empty parking spot at Walmart. Come on. It's got to be more. Blessed is used in Scripture as a designation of someone experiencing supreme favor from God, resulting in extravagant flourishing and fulfillment. But how Jesus is using it is unusual because remember who is in the crowd, who he is saying is blessed. He's ascribing God's blessing on people who we would assume lack any blessing at all. Uh, Scott McKnight in his commentary says this, instead of blessing the one who pursues wisdom and reason and develops a reputation as a sage, and instead of blessing the one who has a good family, who observes the whole Torah, or the one who has all the right friends and develops a reputation as righteous or as a leader, Jesus blesses those whom no one else blessed. The genius of the Beatitudes emerges from this uh, constrative stance. Uh, they are a countercultural revolution of the people of the kingdom. If we add all this together, we get something like this. A blessed person is someone who, because of a heart for God, is promised and enjoys God's favor regardless of that person's status or countercultural condition. So next, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? And this is an important one. Being that it's the first beatitude and being that the whole thing hinges really on being poor in spirit, this sets the context of the rest of the Beatitudes. It's sort of the foundational work 
understanding and being poor in spirit sets us up to walk out the rest of the Beatitudes. Basically, being poor in spirit is an understanding that we are in lack as we stand before God and we have no ability to produce or maintain any kind of spiritual vitality on our own. It's an acknowledgement that even on our best day, we really have nothing to offer to God. It's a great slap in the face of the American way of life that provides, uh, prides itself on pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and making a name for ourselves. Poverty of spirit is a deep and visceral no to all the dreams, visions, and hopes of a good life that we can build for ourselves. For it knows that at the end of the age, when there is an account to be given to God, that we will come up, every, come up short in every arena that does not have its roots in Jesus. Jesus said in, in John 15, I am the vine and you are the branches. You can do nothing without me. The realization that that's true is poverty in spirit. The, the opposite of poor in spirit would be the church community in Laodicea that we read about in Revelation 3. They're self-righteous and proud. So Jesus speaks to them and says, uh, you say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. This is Jesus speaking to them. You do not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich, white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Poverty of spirit recognizes that everything good and true and beautiful comes from Jesus. And everything is a gift. It's all of grace. To be born in spirit is to be convinced of our utter depravity, that with every intention to have a Midas touch, things that we're in contact with that don't flow from God really turn to stone. But there's a great joy, a great blessedness in realizing that we are unable to be our own saviors. It relieves a lot of pressure to have to perform and be perfect. There's a great joy in realizing how utterly deprived we are without God, but that he loves us beyond measure, beyond understanding. This is the great tension we live in. We are all a sad mess on our own, and we are drowning in oceans of God's love at the same time. There are days that I've got to be reminded of both of these truths, like I'm having a good day. Wow, God, this is all, this is all you. This is all grace. I'm having a terrible afternoon. It's like, God, you still love me no matter what, no matter how bad this gets. That's the tension that we live. Sometimes it feels like you're a pinball going from truth to truth, but it's a tension of both things at the same time. I'm a complete idiot. I'm a jerk. And God loves me perfectly just the way that I am. That brings a lot of humility into your life, the more that you grasp of that. Now, what this shouldn't lead to is this worm theology that just says, actually, that one, one error is worm theology that says, I'm a jerk, I'm a mess, I'm, I'm hopeless, that whatever, I'm just a nothing. Well, yeah, but you need to be reminded that you're loved perfectly just as you are. But then on good days where you're like, I'm the best, I'm important, I'm somebody, look at what I've done for myself, you need to realize, like, yeah, just wait five minutes. Wait five hours, see what happens, see, see what the domino effect of all that self-congratulatory whatever leads to. We need to live in this tension that I am a complete mess and I'm perfectly loved by God. And when we get that, when we, and we'll never fully get that here, but as we take further steps, we'll develop poverty of spirit to be able to say, thank you, God. Thank you for everything and thank you for your love. 
So not, finally, notice Jesus says there's is the kingdom. He doesn't say it, there's shall be the kingdom. Meaning that those who embrace poverty or spirit are able to experience the kingdom now, not just in a future eternal state. The kingdom belongs to us right now and can be entered into right now. This means we can experience the blessedness of God's presence. We can have an alive and vibrant spirit that's passionate for Jesus and the ways of his kingdom. We can surrender our hearts with joy to God. And we can be a vehicle of hope and love, and service to others. So putting all this together, Jesus is saying, as you continually embrace your weakness and need for salvation, you'll see God's favor and participate in his expanding reign all around you. So this hinges, as I said, on getting poverty of spirit right. So if that's the hinge point to to receiving the kingdom and walking in God's blessed favor... How do we embrace being poor in spirit? And I have, I have just a handful of practical points because I want to get really tangible on how we walk this out, how we walk it out ourselves and then together as a church community. So first, understand God's purpose for your life. When you get a vision of who God is and what he has for you, it will awaken your spirit toward God. I believe that when what we, let me start that over. I believe that when we see what God has called us to in this life, there's passion that erupts from within us. Understanding what God will do through a willing and yielded heart becomes fuel that causes us to burn hotter and brighter. So we need to get inspired. I would recommend read biographies of people that God has used in the past. Look at their broken home life. Look at the great things that they did with a yes in their spirit towards God because it should go, well, if you could do that through them, you could certainly do part of that through me, right? Like I could be that alive. You could read either, you know, like ministers and and people that have have followed God and and done great things. You could even read like politicians, William Wilberforce or Dorothy Day and and, and Mother Teresa and and just get fueled by their inspiring stories. Go to conferences, read books, listen to podcasts about people who are on fire for God. There's a thing like if you are, you know, today at the barbecue, whatever, I, I guess we're grilling. It's not, are we doing both? Because people get really testy about what is barbecue and what is not. But anyway, okay, let's just say you've got a grill and you've got coals and you take that coal and you set it off to the side. What happens to the coal? It gets like ashy and gray and, and the fire dies down. But what happens if you put that same coal and put it right in the middle on the hot, hot coal fire? It inflames and we need that. We need to get around people who are passionate for God. And who have an alive and vibrant spirit? Because oftentimes what you'll find is that they're the poorest, most humble and heart people. Because they just have given everything over to God. Secondly, let go of offense. Offense and unforgiveness plug the flow of God's grace. When we look at what others have and become frustrated that God hasn't done the same for us, we grow resentful and mistrusting of God. So we need to let that go. We must understand that everyone's call is unique and that God owes nothing to no one. That's why it's called grace. It's a gift. Third, be grateful but never content. Here's what I mean by that. Many of us were passionate in our faith when we were younger. You kind of hit those mid-30s. You know, and that thing happened that people told you would happen. Like, 
I remember being in my, my early 20s, and like I was just, you know, I was, I was on fire for God. And I had older, well-meaning people in the church community like, oh, it's kind of like this condescension of like, aren't you so cute with all your big ideas about God? Just wait. One of these days, that fire, that, that zeal, that'll, that'll die down. Life will happen. You'll get some kids. Your schedule will get full. you get married, of course, like, that's just going to go away. It's going to take a backseat to the really important things. And I'm saying, like, people mean well, but that's a total lie. Your zeal for God does not have to die down as, as, as life knocks on your door. So we need to leave that behind. And don't be the person that pours water on someone else's fire. Yeah, we understand. Teens and, and young adults probably need to have a little wisdom and grow up a little bit. But never put out someone else's fire. And more than that, Stoke your own. Do whatever you can to be on fire for God. Okay? So be satisfied. Be grateful, but never be content. There's always more of God. You can have as much God as you want. He said in James, if you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. So how much you're experiencing God in your life is how much you hunger for him right now. But there's more. And you can say every day of your life, every morning when you wake up and every time you go to bed, more Jesus Thank you for everything, and I want more of you. Following Jesus is an adventure. And if you're bored with God, it's not because God is boring. I say that with, I mean, that, that's a bold statement, I understand. But I say that with all pastoral compassion that I can muster. God is not boring. If, if we're bored with him, it's on our end, not his. Okay? Okay. Purge your life of sin. John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That's dramatic, but it's correct. Sin will stifle your spiritual growth and vitality. It will steal your joy. Most importantly, it breaks your connection with God's spirit. What others may explain away as permissible, your goal is to run the opposite direction of that sin. Get the heck out of there. Because that's the direction of deeper connection with God. He is your exceeding great treasure and joy. Run towards God and away from sin. It's as simple as that. Don't compare yourself to others. Well, so-and-so is able to do that. They're able to watch that. They're able to listen to that. So what? You're not their master. Let them deal with Jesus over that. You get the heck out of there, right? There is so much, like just watching Netflix or like scrolling through with my boys, there is so much softcore pornography that, that, that is, is shielded by a PG-13 or rated R rating that we're okay with. What I'm saying is, yeah, you may, some people may be able to watch that, but, but you, you were called out. You were different. You were special. Run. Run towards God in those moments. And then finally, man, I'm, is it okay I'm preaching a little bit? Is that okay? All right. Fifth, final. Practice awareness. Mark Scandrit, again, in the Ninefold Path of Jesus where in your life do you feel like you don't have enough or are not enough? When we become aware of our lack, our first instinct is to grab and grasp, holding on to whatever we believe will make us feel safe and secure. What makes you feel anxious and close-handed? So that practicing this kind of awareness, of knowing what's going on, this emotionally healthy spirituality, will reveal your anxiety so you can bring it to Jesus. Spiritual poverty is about surrendering these grasps for comfort and for power so they can be transformed by him. 
Our weakness, when surrendered, can be turned into some of our greatest strengths. Usually, he, he goes on in this book, he usually says that, he says, we tend to worry about money, job, and finances, like five areas, money, job, finances, two, physical, mental health, three, relationships and the well-being of those we love, four, esteem, identity, and significance, and five, anticipating future difficulties, pain, and uncertainty. Where's, where is your struggle are you anxious over money and provision? Like, is there going to be enough tomorrow? Are you struggling with a relationship that's not repaired or just a miscommunication that hasn't been patched together? Your meaning, like, do people see me? Am I important? Am I respected? Where is your struggle? Are you aware of those points? Because those points, if they go unaddressed, if they, if they go unaware will become the places that we resist poverty of spirit because we're busy grasping for control and comfort. But what if our church became the kind of place where we made space for each other to be poor in spirit, to admit our weaknesses to each other? Not, not in this like false, authentic, well, I'm a jerk, that's just who I am, that's my weakness. Like, no, grow up. <laughs> but like places for doubt, a place for anxiety, a place where we can bring our brokenness out of the darkness and into the light and just sit with it with each other, a place where we don't have to fix each other because we're all on a journey with Jesus that's unique, a place where you can, you can test out purpose and calling and say, I think God might be doing this. Can I trust this church with my dreams can I trust this church with my future? What if we were the kind of place where people who were deconstructing or had bad church experiences knew that they could sit and be for however long, however many seasons that it took to be healed? What if we did that for each other? That would be a life-giving church, wouldn't it? So here's one step I think we could, I'm gonna have the worship team come up. Here's one step that we could take together as a practice to embrace our own spiritual poverty. So I want to invite you to take time this week to sit with God and allow your insecurities to surface. That might take two minutes. That might take two hours. I, I'm not sure. But to sit with God in all the places that you're afraid or that are stressing you out or that you feel anxiety and hurt around, how can you offer those to Him? How can you just like Emma had us practice, like hold hold our hands out in front of God and say, hey, this is, this is all the junk that I'm aware of right now. Can you do something with this? I want to invite you to do that this week. You can even start now in our ending worship time. And how might you embrace further spiritual poverty? So I'd love to pray with you. Why don't you stand with us? And let's just take a moment in God's presence. If, if it feels comfortable or authentic to you, you can, you can put your hands out again, whether you're aware or whether you're unaware. You just be, have the, this posture of openness, openness of heart, openness of mind before God. Let's pray. So Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus, not in our name, not in our pastor's name, not in our church's name. We come before you in the name of Jesus. And we give you thanks, first off. We give you thanks for your love, for your gifts of grace, for your mercy, for everything that you've done 
that we are aware and unaware of, God. And we do, we want to take a step towards spiritual poverty, to be poor in spirit, to receive the kingdom, God. So help us this week become more aware of how you see us, how you see us through the lens of love and how you see us perfectly, all the places that we hide, all the places where we feel shame, we feel embarrassment. Pray that you would meet us in those places and, and we bring those and we offer those to you even now, God. God, I thank you for this church family. Thank you for what you're doing. I pray for extravagant grace this week. In Jesus' name, amen. This teaching was recorded by Tallgrass at the Well. We're building community together by inviting people into the way of Jesus. For more resources like this, visit tallgrassatthewell.church.